This is Big Red Potion. by TGR, UGN and a whole lot of love, you're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast that's not about finding just any game, it's about finding the awesomest one. I'm your host, Sinan Kiver, otherwise known as Keith, uh, editorial and features director for a little site we've all come to know and love as the Game Reviews, and as always I'm joined by TGR's previous director, he's the man who puts the fanboy into Silent Hill, Joe Slambanderhuge Delia. Now before I introduce you Joe, and I, I understand from your Twitter update that you might be a little bit hungover. Can I tell you the intro I came up with you? That's kind of appropriate for our guests, but I decided to ditch it because it's a bit rude. Is that all right? Yeah, go for it. Okay, it was going to be, and I'm going to have to beep this out, he's the man who puts the c*** into Duck Hunt. But I thought that might be just a bit rude. I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah, I'm sorry. How, how the hell are you? I'm doing all right. If I fall asleep during the podcast, just make a lot of noise and we'll be fine. Um, but good, doing good. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so we've got a very special episode of the Large Crimson One today, and some special guests that we're very pleased to welcome onto the show. So our first guest is practically a regular now, but it doesn't make him any less special. It's Antiriad from the Ninja Fat po- from the <laughs> from the Ninja Fat Pigeons podcast. I think that's how you say it, Zan. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, Ninja Fat Pigeons. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for Hi. having me on again. Oh, you're welcome. How, how the hell are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Just um, this afternoon recorded a. Uh, podcast for the gamer scene as, a, as they will be known from monday um to do with 8-bit gaming so i'm you know i'm all warmed up and ready to go well uh, let's see if i can get this podcast out before they announce it just to screw everything up <laughs> <laughs> that'll be fantastic uh okay so on to our two other guests uh they are the men or should i say legends behind the frugal gaming podcast their site is dedicated to saving you money, but there's also plenty of reviews, news, and even a podcast that these two guys star in that's dedicated to its explicit tag. So uh, it's a pleasure to welcome Darren and Nori onto the show, and indeed a welcome back to Nori, who guested on the first ever Big Red Potion. Uh, quite a few things have changed since then, haven't they, guys? Yeah, there's... Uh, oh, I'll let him go first, because he wants to jump in first. <laughs> no, no, one, after you, honestly. Oh, is this really... how it's going to be like all show, guys? <laughs> It is. This is how it's going. But we're like Bert and Ernie, you know. So, um, yeah, there's uh, been massive amounts changed, both with the sort of podcast that we do and the site. It's uh, grown into its own little community now. And, um, yeah, uh, so we're all, you know, really enjoying what we're doing. Take over Norm, will we? <laughs> yeah, we, are, uh, we have grown fairly uh, substantially since, I think it was October that we kicked off, so... We're quite pleased with the way everything's going and uh, the support that we've got. Certainly being part of the, the UGN as well has been a uh, quite a, a coup being part of that as well because quite a few other people from other sites tend to come along and visit and stay around for game nights and such like. So it's, uh, it's all very good. We're all very happy with the way it's went so far. Absolutely. Well, many congratulations from Bigger Passion uh, to you guys because uh, you're doing a fantastic job. We're going to talk about something that's very important to their site, which is game economics. So, let's get straight into it and go straight to our man in Scotland, Nori. Nori, when it comes to game pricing, game economics, what gets under your skin the most? Right, now, um, when you sent the show notes out, 
you, you made mention of a particular thing that I'd been moaning about in the past. Now, the thing is, I moan about so very many things, it's really hard to keep track. <laughs> um, but uh, I believe at some point in the past I made reference to the price of DLC. So like, uh, you know, like a good little boy, I jumped on the internet earlier on looking for some uh, research tips. And um, I'm afraid I came up a little bit short because Daz and I got stuck on a particular site that's Trident sent us which uh, took up our whole time, which is swear.com. I don't know if you've ever tried it. <laughs> uh, I can guess what it does. <laughs> yep. It's, it's incredible. So rather than coming here with an educated uh, outlook on the prices of DLC, I've got uh, things to throw at you, such as uh, words like bumstorm and bum breath. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's going to boost your podcast ratings or not, but I thought I should throw it in there anyway. Oh, but you missed, uh, you missed Poot Gobbler, Arse Hobbit. <laughs> Toss monkey, slag stirrer, and shit captain. And a super highway. How would you? How would I miss that? I think um, that set the tone nicely. I think so. Uh, so yeah, basically DLC is one of these things that's caught on quite often. And the last time I was on Big Red Potion, uh, that was exactly what we were talking about. Yeah. And uh, since then, it's uh, it's developed even further because now it's not just map packs and things like that that are hitting the marketplace. Uh, Sometimes ridiculous price, sometimes a reasonable price. It's full games. I'm going to make reference to the PlayStation PlayStation Portable Go, which uh, I'm sure everybody's heard of by now, which is probably the biggest lump of overpriced crap ever to hit a, a retail shelf. And the games that are coming out for that are all going to be DLC, as, as you probably know. Um, I don't know if you're, you're aware of the pricing point for them, but they're coming out at... It's round about $10 beneath what a full-blown PlayStation 3 game is, which is, quite frankly, in my opinion, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, for a, a system that's literally five years old, the gaming experience hasn't changed any. The, the console that you're using perhaps looks a little bit different, but you cannot possibly justify releasing DLC at that price, particularly when these games have already been out maybe two or three years, and uh, you can get them on eBay for you know ridiculously cheap. So it's bizarre. I don't really understand the thought, pri- thought process behind it, although I'm sure Zanteria is going to jump in and beat me about the head with uh, what the reasons are, but I can't, I can't honestly figure it out. So I mean, these, are, these are games which were originally released on PSP and are being re-released through DLC, is that right? That's well... Part of them, uh, part of the part of the launch catalogue is going to be games that exist already on UMD drives that you can pick up relatively cheap on store shelves already. Uh, but they are coming out at thirty nine ninety nine dollars. So, right. what would you say a uh, you know a reasonable price is for them to be released at? Well, I think they should be. I think it should be subject to market conditions. I think they should really have a look at what that game's retailing for in a physical sense, on the shelf, and make an assessment that way, rather than just across the board hit every game with the same price point, which is what they've done, or what they're proposing to do. I mean, it doesn't really make much sense that it's coming out at a price that it... it certainly, I mean, I don't have a PSP, but it, it must be more than what it came out originally for. Like, is it? did it come out for... Even, yeah. if, it, even if it's the same, that's still fairly ridiculous. I mean, is, it, is that what you're annoyed with, or are you annoyed with that it's DLC at that price? Does that, is that what annoys you more? Well, I think the biggest problem I have with it is by doing this, they are essentially making a monopoly. They're creating the PlayStation Store, and eventually I think what's going to happen is it'll be very difficult to find a a retail box game. It's going to be downloadable content in the foreseeable future, which is the way that you have to pick up every game. And if you're forced into buying at a particular price, which is 
overinflated for the experience that you're buying, um, I don't think that's right. Fair enough if it was perhaps a brand new system with a whole new set of specs um, and the games were absolutely top notch. But if anybody can tell me that they've played a PSP game that they think is worth 39.99 from three or four years ago now, um, I would be very surprised. But they've they've already done exactly that on the PlayStation Network already with uh, PSP games. For example, uh, End War for the PSP mm. was released at £39.99 uh, and it mm. was available uh, on disc. Uh, and even on the PS3 it was available for around £12 at the time. But they mm-hmm. still thought it you know, was justifiable to release at £40 on the PlayStation Network, which yep. in my opinion is you know, outrageous. That is exactly my point. That is going to be across the board now. Uh, very, very shortly. So, that, I remember when that happened, you were very vocal about it, Daz. And quite rightly so. Quite rightly so. Xbox 360 games on demand pricing um, is in line with that. Also, they're charging mm-hmm. 30 for Call of Duty 2 when you can go into a used game store and buy that for like 10 bucks now. And the only games I think that were uh, the same price as they are at retail now was Mass Effect at 20 bucks. But they were, most of the third party games were, were about 10 bucks more than they are at most stores now. That's right. I think they're actually feeding the pre-owned market um, by doing that because people will make a conscious decision to go down to GameStation or whatever it is that's, that's nearby, pick it up off the store shelf for whatever price it is there rather than spend an extra £10. The problem is that like, the, the, by putting these games on like Xbox 360 and on PSN, it's supposed to stop game, used game sales because, oh, why would I go buy this you know junk used copy that's scratched mm-hmm. up? when I could just buy it for new myself. And theoretically, it's a great idea, but if you're going to charge way more, especially since most used game stores have, you know, buy two, get one free sales, they have the cards that get you 10% off, stuff like that. I mean, if you're not going to be competitive with the pricing, it's, it's a complete waste of time and effort to put these things on. I'm not going to defend the pricing on the PSP Go. I, I do think it is ridiculous. But I think that it's a more complex equation than simply comparing it to the price on, on the retail, sh- retail shelf. Particularly with the PSP, you've got to look at where the PSP, where, where the current position of the PSP is in the market. It's, it's not selling well. Um, games on it do particularly bad at retail. And Sony's really in an impossible position where it needs both publishers and retailers to help it shift the PSP to get, to get those sales. And I think what you'll find is that the, the, the price is high for, for two reasons. The first is that a lot of the publishers are not keen to develop on the PSP. And so Sony, through this you know, new downloadable store, are hoping to maintain margins that they can publish onto, onto those publishers um, so that the publishers then feel like they're actually getting a good chance of actually making a profit on those games. And the second thing is the, actually the power of the retailer. So um, someone like GameStop will basically turn around to Sony and say, well, if you're going to have all the games um, priced half the price of the retail box, we're not going to stock your PSP Go. So there's a lot of negotiation between the manufacturer of the hardware and the person who owns the license agreement for actually selling PSPs and PSP games and the retailer who's then going to carry it in their store. And the problem we've got in both the US and Europe, we have chains of game stores that basically monopolize the market and are able to almost dictate terms to the likes of Sony where they've got a product they're weak on. So I think what you'll find is you know, Microsoft, with its huge install base on the Xbox 360, can be a bit more competitive with its games on demand. I think they're going to 
they're going to go for sort of 16, 20 quid, aren't they? Whereas Sony with the PSP Go is in such a weak position that they're having to negotiate with retailers and with publishers in order to get new games on that platform and get retailers to actually carry the PSP Go in their stores. Hmm. I hear what you're saying with that, and it makes a lot of sense, but the, the, the issue I have with it, I suppose, is that the developers have already made games, say, two or three years ago. They already exist. They've already been developed. Um, there isn't really any additional cost now because it's already created. What they're doing now is distributing it, and if you're distributing it through downloadable channels, then surely it cannot cost as much as it would to put it on a store shelf in a physical form. So how is it? I find it difficult to see how it would be justifiable to put something on a store shelf at £10 cheaper than what you're selling DLC for, if, that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I, I think it largely depends on what Sony is charging the publisher to carry the game on their store. Um, I'll give you an example, to put a PSP game in a PSP box, Sony charges the publisher $10. Now, I, it's only a rumour, but from what I understand, for PSN, for a game to carry on PSN, the markup for Sony is even higher. So it may be that for um, you know one of these new PSP Go games, it may be $20.00 the markup that Sony's taken from that. Uh, and they will argue that the reason for that is that they provide the PSN and the PlayStation Network for free, and they need to fund that somehow through the cost of retail items on the store, um, as opposed to Microsoft, which uses a subscription model. So therefore, you know, the argument's slightly stronger on their side to say, OK, things should be slightly cheaper. I find but that a weak argument, considering that there's more to XPLA and PSN than... The, you know, the subscription being free on PSN and, and uh, costing XPLA because you know there are added benefits. To well, that was online. the argument. That was the argument they used when they implemented their download tax. You know, their infamous um, um, bandwidth charge that they pass right. on to publishers for carrying demos and stuff, which is considerable. Now, if you think that that bandwidth charge will apply to all the all of these PSP Go games, and I think it's, I, I can't remember the actual figures. I'm not sure we can probably dig them up, but. It was so substantial that most publishers stopped doing demos because it just wasn't cost-effective. It was costing them too much money to actually carry them on the PSN. And the reason that they did that is because running a, a massive um, network infrastructure is very, very expensive. Um, I, I don't know what the actual figures are for, for Xbox Live, but I do know it, you know, it, it runs into the hundreds of millions of dollars a year to actually run that service. I mean, in, in my job, I look after... Uh, 42 server infrastructure around the world and I can tell you that costs us probably half a million pounds a year to keep that running so it's not cheap to to actually have this infrastructure but having said that I totally agree with Nori and and, and Daz that you know the the price of these that they're going to pitch these games at is going to be counterproductive because people are just going to look at yeah, go on. Sorry, do you think also that uh, that price point is going to uh, almost encourage people to pirate the games? Because it's one thing that the previous console, or the <laughs> PSP, has been dogged by, you know, like the, the firm being able to get around the firmware and mm-hmm. use the backup copies yeah. of games. So think- yeah, absolutely. I mean, a good parallel, I mean... <laughs> We are talking about it before the show because um, Joe had never heard of the Commodore Amiga, but the Commodore Amiga famously died under the weight of piracy on it, and, and they had to resort to bringing out the, the Amiga uh, 32 CD to try to combat that. And, and towards the end of that era, the price of Amiga games went through the roof. They got up to sort of 50, 60 quid at one point because that was a reaction to the piracy. Like, you know, it, it reached the point where 
the developers and publishers were having to put the prices up to more than to make any sort of money. And of course, that just encouraged more and more piracy. So it's a vicious circle. And I, I do think this is a big mistake they're making, but I can see where the economics are coming into it. It's not a good thing, but it, it's, you know, it's quite clear why this particular platform has been affected this way. So you're, you're admitting we're, you're wrong and we're right, is that right? <laughs> Let me just say you say it, please. <laughs> well, no, you're right in terms of the prices are too high, and I think it will be counterproductive. Yeah, so I think you, you mentioned piracy. I'm sure piracy will probably won't change at all on the PSP. I don't think game sales for the PSP Go will be particularly good, actually. Mm. Well, that's the thing. It's um, you said it was a it, you know, it was a complex equation for the developer and for Sony and so on to come to these sort of price points, but it's not a complex equation for the consumer. You know, nobody's really going to. Right. sitting there on their couch like Billy Bollock jobs and download things for £40 when they can just uh, nip across to Asda and pick something up for 15 or £20, which is the, which is the case. That End War game you mentioned, as I, I'm absolutely certain I've seen that for about 19.99, boxed up, and it's still sitting on the PlayStation Network at £40. Yeah. And that's the PSP version of that game as well. I mean, that's just, it makes it doubly ridiculous that anyone's going to prepare, pay, you know, be prepared to pay that price when you can get probably on the PS3, Xbox 360, or PC cheaper. It's uh, £8 on the PS3 at the moment, but £40 on the PSN still. I mean, to be honest, like, Sony has been making these mistakes since the PSP launched. I mean, does anyone remember the UMD movie pricing? Oh, I mean, yes. they thought people were going yep. to pay 20 30 bucks for a movie on UMD. You can't watch it on TV at the time. You couldn't. You can't do anything else with that disc except watch it in your PSP on this, you know, two-inch screen. And they were charging more than DVD copies for those things. I mean, if they didn't learn from that debacle, I don't understand what they're doing here again with the same exact situation. People are pirating PSP games like crazy, like more than any other console I could think of in the last five, ten years. And they're just driving more people into that by saying, hey, we're going to put out this really expensive alternate for the PSP that you don't have to buy and that won't be able to pirate games as easy. Or you could just stick with what you're doing now, download all the new games that we're putting out for free, and continue doing what you were doing and be happy for no money at all. Well, and I don't really see where they're going with this. I think Sony are trying to pitch it as a high-end uh, iPod iTouch. And I think that yeah. that's a very, very stupid decision because no one wants a high-end iPod iTouch. They want an iPod or iTouch. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to work for them. I mean, it's interesting. If, with, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. If you look at the sort of template the uh, iTunes App Store is using, for digital downloads, you know, the prices on there are so, that they've almost made them so cheap that you you don't even think about buying them. I know, obviously, you can't reduce a PSP game to, you know, 59 pence, but, you know, I think if they did reduce the price to something, you know, mm. half what they're, you know, uh, putting about at the moment, you know, people would buy it in a lot larger numbers. I would I would actually add to that the I'll give you an example Tiger Woods on the PlayStation Portable um, is I'm fairly certain it's about thirty pounds to buy on the App Store and iTunes it is five ninety nine in fact it's down to two ninety nine now and it's literally the same game there's very very little difference between the two in terms of the game experience that you're having the the whole business model that Apple are using on the App Store is it's, it's what I think Sony are trying to mirror, but they're doing it all the wrong way because the iPod Touch you can pick up for a f- the fraction of a price of what PSP Go is going to be. It's, what is it, £180 now you can get one for? And the PSP Go is at least £70 on top of that. Once you've got the PSP Go, you're then paying over the odds for software. 
in the app store, you don't do that like Darren says. You go away and you, you pick up a 59 pence game, you pick up a 5.99 game, and the game experience is similar. The graphics are similar as far as I can tell. I don't see an awful lot of difference. So if they're trying to go head-to-head with Apple, they're going to lose. Well, I think Zan made a very good point relating to that earlier regards you know, the problems they'll face with retailers. And I think it's, it's not with the PSP especially that, that that's an issue. It's with the PlayStation 3 because we already know retailers have said how, what, what they'll do if uh, Microsoft and Sony go full-blown with their distribution models you know, for PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. I think with the PSP, if they, what they, like Zan said, the only way they could get around it was to pitch it so high-end and try to pretend that this is a, <laughs> a high-end Apple product, which is uh, not going to work. I mean, it's interesting with, with you know digital distribution models. I mean, I guess the the more interesting parallel is you know from the Amiga, it, it's uh, Steam and the PS and the PC. And you know, you mentioned piracy, Darren, and I I don't know the stats on piracy now with PC, but I, and I'm not sure how that affects Steam. But uh, to me, it seems like Steam is the real deal when it comes to digital distribution. It's just a shame it's on PC, and I, I don't know. How do you guys feel about Steam? If my uh, calculator could run it, it would be fine. But yeah. uh, <laughs> no, it's oh, it, so, not something I use often. Right. I, I must. I looked at Steam for the very first time last week, as being a, a sort of um, rabid Mac owner and refusing to have anything Windows in my property. Um, I'd not actually, you know, I didn't have an operating system I could run it on. But I picked up a netbook and I thought, right, I'll stick Steam on it just so I can see what it's like. And what I was really surprised at is how expensive everything was. Mm. Um, uh, you know, s- some of the stuff on there, like World of Goo for 16 quid, that's an incredible price. Um, when it's something like a third of that on the Wii. Uh, to, to, to counteract that, they just did this indie deal this weekend. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, they, they seem to do these package deals, but it, it, it strikes me that the, well, from what I've just, you know, hunting around on it, what struck me was that most things on there were actually fairly um, highly priced or, or were similar to what you would probably pay at retail. Um, with the exception of these deals they seem to do. So if you pick up the deals, you're okay, but if you don't, you're looking at stuff that's sometimes more expensive. And another good example is the Monkey Island um, Special Edition. It's more expensive on Steam than it was on Xbox Live. So there's the, the whole concept of paying less for something that's digital, I don't think is yet established. Um, and, and, the, and the model that everyone holds up is, is things like iTunes and, and the, the move of, uh, of music into a digital format. But even that isn't considerably cheaper than it is at retail it's only a fraction under so I, I, I think we're kidding ourselves if we're expecting it to be a lot cheaper uh, and, and, all, and the arguments you know the usual thing about where well, you don't have to pay for the shop and you don't have to pay for transporting it halfway around the world and things like that but the thing is that those te- types of things are actually cheap you know you can stick a 25 pence stamp on a quite a hefty parcel and send it across the country um, but if you send data it's actually can be more expensive so you know, it's, um, it's, it's the economics of it are quite tricky, quite complex. Sorry, they, they must be because that's uh, that's uh, that's not something I've I've ever heard anybody say before. Actually, that it's um, cheaper. Well, to put to it this way: it's cheaper to send something through electronic means. It is. Let me put it this way: okay, on how much can you fit on a DVD? I think it's about four and a half gig, isn't it? I can send four and a half gig of data to you, Nori, for nineteen mm-hmm. p. But how much, if I, if I was to, in terms of my broadband cost and everything else, how much would that same amount of data cost me? Considerably more uh, than that. I'm not so sure I agree with that, actually, to be, to be honest. But um, I don't know enough about it, so it's probably best I don't tackle you on that <laughs> front. But um, to, to be honest, it's, 
what I'm, the way I'm looking at it is probably an old-fashioned way. Of, if you've got materials, if you've got stuff that you need to make things like boxes and packaging and discs and so on, all these things cost money. And I know economies of scale come into it at some point. At some point, you you know your your processing is is such that you you don't lose money on the manufacturing side of it, but it still costs you money in the long run. So how can that possibly? What I'm not really understanding is how can that possibly be more expensive to send something through data rather than doing it the old-fashioned way. Well, the, the thing is that the, the price of the box, excluding you know how much it costs to actually design the sleeve and all that kind of stuff, is actually part of the um, royalty payment that that is paid to the platform holder. So, for example, PSP boxes, they're actually made and sold by Sony, and so are the, uh, the discs. You know, they have a factory set up that just churns out billions of... UMDs basically, and when you pay Sony your royalty, your ten dollars per game, that cost, the cost of manufacturing those boxes is covered in that. Right. So you'll probably find it's very very low. It's probably only like three, four, maybe even five pence um, for a box, and maybe I don't know, fifteen, twenty p for a UMD. I mean, these are just wild guesses, but it's not that much. But if you do digital distribution, it's a cost on top of that. Um, but it's not. It, I, I know what you mean. It's, it's difficult to look at things and say, okay, well, it's physical, so it must be more expensive. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It, it, it honestly isn't always the case. Um, data does cost money, and, and, and we often don't appreciate that fact. So. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly uh, an argument that um, that would support why the games are going out at that price. Then, if, if that's the case, but um, I just think it's really hard to believe. I think, especially like you said, when you've got places like the App Store that are doing exactly that and doing it successfully and making a good amount of money from it, it's you know it is hard to get your head round. Mm-hmm. Right, and there are other things. It you know, especially with Steam, you know, there was the whole dollar versus pound debate around this time last year because I don't know if you guys yeah heard anything about it, but essentially there were because we have problems with game prices anyway between between Britain and America, which we'll talk about later, but essentially they were putting games at the same price for dollar for pound. So it was 50, you know, 50 quid for a certain game on, on in Steam in America and 50 pounds uh, here in, in uh, Britain, which... Uh, and the pricing is still a bit odd. You know, that certain games are cheaper than they would be at retail, certain games are more expensive, and I think Steam is a far from being mature and grounded, but... Uh, the pro, the pro Steam market would argue, Zan, that uh, the long tail of games on Steam makes them cheaper overall. And, uh, you know, that, say, to the example of Unreal Tournament 3, which apparently 18 months after its release, there was a free trial that went on, on Steam, like you play free for a, a weekend. And so they had a 2,000% increase in players after that. And then with the reduced price, they had, like, an increase in sales which stopped the game from being a commercial failure. So I don't know if you think there's any sort of backing for the argument of a long tail with PC games on Steam. Definitely. I think well, Steam is fighting against the tide of piracy, isn't it? So I don't, I don't think uh, anyone can criticise Steam. And so from what I've seen of it, you know, I'm, I'm quite impressed with you know, the, the, the structure of it and, and the fact that there, are, there is so much stuff on there. And there's quite a lot of old games. You know, I, I downloaded um, Civ 3, for example. I think it was like £12 or something. Right. Um, I mean, that's that's... Great, the fact that it's almost acting as like an archive and like you said, keeping some of these older games alive and presumably passing on some of the um, some of the money that we spend on onto those publishers, so they they are getting a long tail. No, I don't think we can really criticise Steam too much. Um, you know, only really looking at it, you know from a value for money point of view, as as the guys at Frugal will do, is looking at it and saying, well, you know, some of these things are actually right. pretty pricey. 
That's fair enough. I mean, I guess annoyed a real problem with Steam at the end of the day is that it's on PC, which is, you know, <laughs> like Essentially you said, you have designed to view porn. That's right. It's <laughs> made use, in my it's, opinion. It's fact. That's it is fact. fact. <laughs> it is in my house, anyway. <laughs> make sure the wife's not here. Yep. She's in the <laughs> Close your Steam, Darren. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> Um, we can't we can't move on from this section before we talk about the the main thing that's been discussed recently, which is the whole rise in XBLA game prices. And I, I guess Dad's asking you really because you've probably seen it on your forums or people talking about the the cost of XBLA going XBLA games going up by apparently one dollar seventy four since two thousand and five, and a whole eight hundred to twelve hundred point shift. I mean, what, what's your view on that? Obviously, any increase in price to me is a bad thing, but. Um you know, we're in a recession. They'll probably use that as a big excuse. Um, a lot of the time during a recession, initially you see prices drop, but then you see them go back up. And I think this is just one thing that you know, uh, it is quite a big jump from eight to twelve hundred points. And I've not heard anybody uh, say it's justifiable the jump in price. You know, but I think it has to be expected in the current um, climate. Whether, you know, if we weren't in a recession, whether that price would have been raised, I don't know. But um, I think it was something that had to be expected. But, you know, people are definitely not happy about it. Um, I don't download enough stuff off there because uh, of the silly price and structure, which I think we're discussing later. You know, so it's something that's not really relevant to me. But, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of unhappy people. But anything that increases in price, all, you know, you're going to get is bad feedback from it, I think so but you know nobody has to use it do they they could always uh, go out and buy a decent game rather than an arcade game right <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your views then because I know you've got a slightly different view on that in particular uh, yeah I do I have a completely different view um, I was really annoyed with guitar can I just well. say that if that's different to mine then it's actually wrong <laughs> agree on that first <laughs> sure um, yeah it will be different um yeah, I got really annoyed with Kotaku because they, you know, I made a blog post a couple of weeks ago about this mm. because I was getting was, fed uh, up with with Stephen Tatillo, wasn't it, on Kotaku who posted yeah, that thing? Yeah, yeah, and and it just came out about two days after I'd written my blog article on it, and it, and I, it wound me up because it was yet again fueling the the misinformation. The prices have have risen and they've risen steadily, but so have the, the games have completely changed. I mean, if you look at what was there when the 360 first came out, and you know, I I. And I was an early adopter, and I know that for a fact because it's blown up about ten times. But the um, games like Wick and um, uh, Cloning Clyde, things like that, they were cheap ass ports of PC games that probably took two months to convert and had maybe three people working on it. Things like Battlefield 1943 and Braid have taken either years to make or have huge teams of people working on it. I think the Battlefield apparently has something like 50 or 60 developers working on it for 1943, even though it's effectively it's a glorified port. You know, the, the costs of making these games are so much higher now than it was at the start of the 360 life cycle when um, you know, most of the early games like Uno and stuff were very simplistic and tiny. You know, they were 45 meg. And now they're clocking in at 300, 400 megabytes in size. You know, the, one of the most expensive things in video game development is actually art. So you can actually create the engine and, and do a lot of the logic fairly cheaply, but it's actually the art that costs the most to produce. And the huge um, advances in the graphics and the, and the detail and the level of polishing 360 games, certainly in the last year, 
just it's just a testament really to the to the additional cost they cost to make. The other issue I have really is the fact it's I blame Microsoft for this is that the the whole Microsoft point system makes it look like it's more expensive than it is. Right. So, for example, I've heard lots of people on many podcasts now say, oh, 1,200 points, well, that's 12 quid. Well, it's not. It's actually 10 pounds. But there's this whole thing. When you look at, if you look at 800 to 1,200, that looks like a big leap. But when you think it's actually just an increase of three pounds 40, it's, you know, or, 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 you know, $5, it's actually very little. But not um, only that, if you if, because the price point is 1,200 points, I don't think you can get 1,200 points off, uh, you know, the Microsoft uh, arcade thing. So you're having to go up to the next level, which is at 1,700 points. Yeah. Or, you know, so you're always ending up with uh, points left over. So if you're not going to use them straight away, it's already made that purchase more expensive in the first place, you know. And you it, end up it, buying it, rubbish little crap, like, you know, yeah. something for your avatar yeah. or something. You, know? you, you do. And, and, and the way that the... Because the points are... Uh, you know, they're high numbers, 800, 1,200. It gives the impression that you're actually spending more than you are. You know, I, th- I think it, they were insane to go with this system. It was It's ludicrous because, it, it, to me, it's counterproductive. When you look, when you go on the PlayStation store and you see something like uh, Trash Panic for, I thought, forgot what it was now, I think it was four quid or something. It makes sense. You look at it and you think, oh, yeah, it's four quid. I'll get that. No problem at all. You know, but... When you're looking at 800 and 1200, these are all kind of weird subjective figures. I know it's a bit different in the States because it's an easy equation. You know, 800 is right. 10 bucks, 1200 is $15. But over here, everybody gets it wrong. You know, when you say to someone, how much is 800 points? They'll say, oh, it was eight quid, but actually it's six. So it's, it's definitely the, you know, uh, made me buy a lot more stuff off the PlayStation Network because it is, you know, in pounds, you can see exactly what you've got to pay. I know you've got the minimum. Of a five-pound spend, but you, you know, at least you know that, you know, like Fat Princess was eleven ninety-nine. If that would have been in Microsoft points, that'd have seemed, like you say, a lot. Fifteen hundred. Yeah, it would yeah. have been fifteen hundred. Again, people were saying, "Oh, it's equivalent twelve hundred points." It's not. It's fifteen hundred. You know, the, the whole the whole system works against them. I think. The, the, um, the, there is the counter argument that it's the whole kind of Disney model, isn't it? That you go into Disney and you, you change your money over for Disney money, <laughs> and you know, so you don't quite realise what you do have and how much everything yeah. is worth. So, like you say, it's subjective, but that can work in the other direction that you don't quite realise that you're spending ten quid on this game. It's like twelve hundred points. I've got twelve. I've got sixteen hundred left. So what? You know, that, they, I think that that's what their strategy was. They should have made it eighty and. 120 then or something. I, anyway, don't I agree with Disney, that. I do agree Disney, with that. Everything Disney should be burned. <laughs> I hate Disney uh, with a passion. Well, like, <laughs> yeah, Microsoft and Disney do have a few things in common, don't they? Uh, uh, <laughs> just, just, just quickly on that, just before we move on, I want to point the finger at um, Nintendo on this as well, because mm. not many people have picked up on this. Obviously, Nintendo operate the same system, and um, you, you'll know as well that the DSi and uh, Wii stores use their own points, so even though they're the yeah. same... You can't share the points between them. But what they've craftily done recently is they've changed how much the points cost. So the point cards have actually oh, gone up yeah. in price. So what 500 points a few months ago is now costs more than 500... Uh, sorry, costs less a few months ago than it does now. Um, now, at least Microsoft have been transparent in their price increase in that they actually, you know, more and more games are coming out of the 1200 price point. Whereas on the Wii, what they've been doing is craftily upping the price of the cards. Uh, and you may have, I mean, the Frugal guys may have noticed this a little while ago, but at one point on Play.com, you could actually buy 
um, Wii Points cards at two different prices. So uh, I think it, I think they do them in thousand and two thousand, don't they? The two thousand point card was either sixteen quid or twenty quid. So you know, at least uh, as stupid as the Microsoft point system is, at least they're not using dirty tactics to to raise the prices. But the, the one thing that is my biggest gripe with that is that the, all the points left over from when you've bought the bigger amounts to cover, say like the twelve hundred point um, games. If you figure out how many people have spent their money, they've just got these points languishing in their account, and that money that has not been, you know, they've not redeemed those points, so they've, Microsoft have got extra money in their accounts, earning interest, where if we could just pay, you know, exactly what it was, you know, that, that, so that's even more money they're earning for those points being in there, drives me fucking mad. And even yeah. Sony don't don't do that, do they? You have to put a certain amount of money in five pounds, ten pounds, twenty pounds. You can't say I just want this. That's no. done. So none of none of the, it's only Steam that lets you buy something like directly, which is ridiculous. Are you on commission for Steam, by the way? Because yeah, the actually, you know, <laughs> I am. I am hoping for a job with Valve. So uh, if anyone's listening, uh, I'll just yeah. point out that yeah, greenhouse is better. Well, there you go. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that because otherwise I'll be seen as biased. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I guess one last question, which I'll, I'll throw to you, Joe, first off. I mean, the bigger question really of all of this is, are we getting value for money with digital distribution and especially with the consoles with PSN and, and 360? And I guess it, it is kind of confusing with, you know, space box and all that, but are games worth what we're paying for them at the moment? I think so, yeah. I mean, as, as Sam was saying, um, like, you know, 1,200 points now buys you a pretty full-featured game. I mean, if you look back at the Xbox 360 launch, I think the first 1,200 points game was Bankshot Billiards, which is this stupid little pool game. And Luminous was the second one, which is, again, it's pretty much the support of a PSP game. But now for 1,200 points, you're getting Battlefield, and you're getting, you know, a bigger experience, a big meteor experience, more versus Capcom, which was a $50 game a couple years ago and goes for about 100 bucks on eBay if you want to buy an older copy. So, yeah, I think that... For the most part, we're, I mean, even though the Space Bucks program doesn't really appease everyone, it does kind of, you know, the games that we're getting for that money are worth it. And that's stuff that you could put on a retail shelf, and it would sell, and it would be good and be worth it. So, yeah, I absolutely love the way the digital marketplace works now, and I actually I buy plenty of digital games. Um, I think it's a great way to vary up what you're playing in your consoles. And um, I think Steam, in the U.S. anyway, Steam does a good job. The pricing is usually cheaper than, than in stores uh, in the U.S., and they do a lot of sales over here. I don't really know what's going on over there. but So, yeah, I think Steam cleans house on PC as well. The You know, at the end of that, it all comes down to if you don't like the price that they're being sold at, you don't have to download it. You know, these are games, luxury items. They're not necessities. So, you know, I think if you're not happy with the price and The UGN offers something for everyone, from the serious analysis of Big Red Potion to the fun-loving, fast-paced games traffic. Frugal Gaming will bring you gaming bargains to keep your hobby alive, whilst Ninja Fat Pigeons offers one of the best and friendliest communities on the internet. And if you're one of us mature gamers, find like-minded comment at the Gamerdork Podcast and the Cranky Gamers UK. www.unifiedgamersnetwork.com Okay, and we're back, and now we're going to start talking about, I think, retail game economics, and uh, Zan, you wrote a post about 
all this quite recently, so uh, I'm sure you've got a lot to say. Yeah, I, I do, and um, hopefully, I think, I'm, I'm hoping the Frugal Boys here will agree with me on a few things, if not, you know. I wouldn't bet if, on it. No, <laughs> <laughs> probably not then. Um, I mean, I've, I've been in, I mean, it's really sad, I feel kind of train spottery about this, but I've been kind of fascinated by the whole economics of retail the retail video games industry for some time now and um, I don't know if you, you may recall um, particularly in the UK the HMV started rolling out these game zones about a year ago and I actually went and sort of did a sneaky peek and tried to find out what they're up to and there was this thing where they're basically creating like mini arcades in their stores where you, you'd actually pay to play on the Xbox 360 and PS3 and I thought it was a, a stupid thing I'd ever heard of so you know and that's really what got me looking into some of this stuff and what I'd, I sort of fished around, you know, various articles from, you know, GDC conferences and, and things like the recent event in Brighton and discovered, you know, really some of the horrors of the economics of this. And I think um, really the, the evil party in, in this, this empire, if we're looking at it in terms of value for money, is the retailer by, by far um, because they, particularly in the US and the UK, are, so, are able to dictate terms so heavily um, and by using their their might, they can kind of insist uh, publishers and and, and um, platform holders do certain things. But on the other hand, they then take their goods and they resell them about ten times. I think um, I'd, just to give you a quote, which um, comes from this month's uh, official PlayStation magazine, it's by Dave Perry, who is a developer on things like Earthworm and Jim and MDK. He talks about um, you know sort of bricks and mortar chains. Uh, and what they're doing at the moment with things like, um, uh, you know, game trading and, and their kind of double standards when it comes to, to the pricing of their goods. And he basically says that um, when it comes to brick, more bricks and mortar chains, they're basically hitting the gas pedal into oblivion. In other words, they're driving video games into digital distribution because the publishers are really left with no option. Um, right. And to give you an example, I, I dug up a, an article from uh, GDC. Which is, this is five years old. Um, and it really just broke down the, the kind of costs. Um, so for a typical um, game that would be multi-platform, maybe on the DS, the Xbox 360, and the Wii, if the game sells 100,000 copies, it will lose $24 million because it would have cost upwards of $38 million to make, and it would only actually have taken revenue for the actual a publisher, it's not for the developer, the publisher, of $7 million. So they'd have lost $24 million on selling 100,000 copies. Now, I'm, I'm sure you guys, um, Joe and Sinan, will know of plenty of games recently that have only sold one or 200,000 copies. Um, Mad World immediately comes to mind. Mad World, yeah. Oh, I mean, that, that will destroy Sega if they keep doing that, if they keep having those that happen. For a game to, to make a, a decent profit, it really needs to sell between 1 and 2 million copies on across the platforms. Um, and if it does that, it may bring in a revenue of you know, 150 million and make a net profit of 54 million on that. The retailer can hope to make three times that profit on the game because they can sell it three times over. And often, the first resale is done at a price that's slightly under what the game would have retailed for originally, mm-hmm. where their markup can be anything up to 75%. And I know that um, that Darren has, has complained about this as well in the past, that, that really they're, they're just screwing you over 
the 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 price when you trade in games. They, you know, they're giving you fifteen quid or or twenty five dollars, and then they're sticking it on the shelf for fifty dollars or for or for thirty five pounds and raking in the money. And then they're doing that three or four times for every copy they sell. So also the I think one of the things that is really infuriates me is that the the places that do sell. Uh, that do trade in games. If you look at their new retail games, their new releases, they're one. They're also high priced. You know, if you look in ASDA, you'll find them thirty-five pounds. Where in like game, it could cost you an extra fifteen pound on top of that because they know that people are going to have to trade in their games just to, you know, but it's cheaper for them to trade in their game and get, you know, twenty pound and pay the rest than you know to. Um, so if you trade in, say, two games and you're getting £15 back, you're not actually any better off than you would have no. been buying it for 35 no. You see people going in with a bloody bag of games just to get one new release. Yeah. I think the other, or, the or other maybe even uh, two DSs to get oh, one other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, just just to illustrate um, Darren's point there. Um, just a little bit what, more. What you the mean? Put it in words that people can understand. No, 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 no. <laughs> to, just, just to illustrate. I mean, you, you're absolutely spot on. But something like you know, GameStop or, or Game or GameStation in this country will do that. The reason why they will carry a higher retail price for the new game is because it maintains their margin on the used game. Right. If they can have Guitar Hero sitting on the shelf used for 35, you know, uh, sorry, brand new for 45 quid, they can then get their resale, their um, used copy for five quid under that. So they maintain the largest margin they possibly can. I mean, sometimes you'll find um, used games in the, uh, the, uh, of recent releases are actually more expensive than than as Dad says in in as the Walmart. There's, there's an uh, excellent post. It's uh, actually four years old now, but it was over at Games with Jobs by a guy called Elysium, who uh, I think had a very similar job to you, Zan, actually. And he pretty much just stated exactly what you're saying about margins and uh, why used games sell for only five pounds or five dollars less than they do, you know, at retail. But uh, so I'll put it in the show notes and make sure that everyone, you know, can get a chance to read it because it's excellent. Joe, just then on, on use games, I know you told me pre-show about the the issue in America regards GameStop, because I think it's slightly different to what's going on in the UK in terms of the, the margin, uh, the difference in price. So did you want like, yeah. to tell people about that? Yeah, so basically, I mean, anyone who lives in the US is immediately familiar with this, but basically what GameStop does is if I buy Infamous today and I go in later today to trade it in, I will get less than a third of what I paid for that copy. I'll get about maybe 18, 20 bucks for that copy. And what they will do, with what GameStop does specifically, is they never reorder shipments from publishers. So they get their initial shipment of games, which they base off pre-orders, and that's it. So if I want to, I mean, like a game maybe that came out three, four months, Resident Evil 5 is a good example. If Resident Evil 5 sold out at a GameStop, they will never get a new copy in again. So they will... make the used copies basically the only stock that they have, so people have no choice. And if they have new copies available, they will actively um, try and get people to buy the used one. They will actually, like, you'll, I'll, pull, I'll bring a new copy of a game up to the shelf. They will say, you sure you don't want to buy this used? You'll save five bucks. And I'll say no. And they'll say, are you sure? If you subscribe to our magazine, you get an additional 10% off that, and you'll get it for even cheaper. Like, they will actively try to make you switch it to a used copy. And almost every case, for me anyway, is whenever a, a mother goes in there or someone who isn't intimately familiar with GameStop's practices, they will almost always switch over to use, because why not? It's guaranteed I can take it back if it's broken. And um, 
I mean, it's really aggravating. And their pricing on the used games is five bucks cheaper than uh, than the retail costs on everything. Even when the game drops in price, they'll they'll put it two three bucks cheaper, and then that's it. So, um, I mean, you really have no choice in America. If you want to go to a brick-and-mortar store and buy a new game, it's it's very hard to actually find the game you want most of the time, unless it's release day. It, it's also punishing the wrong people, um, mm. because um, most of the people who go to bricks-and-mortar stores are, well, I say most, but a good proportion that go to bricks-and-mortar stores are people who can't buy things online. Maybe they don't have a credit card or they have bad credit rating. So they're getting doubly screwed over. Yep. Um, I mean, again, uh, talking this article that Dave Perry wrote, um, he mentions the fact that all the posters, all the um, you know the kind of cardboard shells that have all the game boxes on them, all the marketing, um, a lot of the stuff that the GameStop and Game in the UK carry is paid for by the publishers. So the publishers are having to fork out for all this material. All the all the right. Game and GameStop have to do is provide the building. And what do they do? They basically pimp out and resell their games three or four times over during the, the you know the initial release, and then they complain when. Uh, digital, di- you know, the threat of digital distribution comes along, um, because of course it's really undermining the potential to resell things. Um, you know, I, I just think it's it's got to the point now. And the thing that really frightened me was when um, ASDA, which is Walmart um, for for Joe's benefit, um, mm. ASDA is owned by Walmart, um, okay. is going to start doing <laughs> it's going to start doing traded games in the UK. And I just think you know that's. That's the beginning of the end. If if the supermarkets start doing it, the supermarkets dominate right. the British retail scene. I mean, something like I think it's something like 78p of every pound that's spent is spent in a supermarket. Um, if they start doing it, it's going to just completely kill it in the UK. It will, it, this is just going to end in a war between the the publishers and the platform holders and the retailers, and it, it's just going to end up with us. I think picking up the bill for it. One thing I read in, in this uh, article on Games with Jobs which shocked me, Joe, and I, I'm assuming it's only true in the US, cause I, and I have to ask the other guests if it's true in the UK, because I couldn't believe it. Apparently, if you go up to the desk in a game station and ask for a copy of, say, like you said, Resident Evil 5, they have no obligation to tell you the copy that they're going to give you if it's used or new. They can give you a used copy and tell you at the used price, and then if, only if you ask, is it used, will they tell you. Now, is that, is that, this was written in 2005, and I, I can't be honest, you know, be certain that's the case, but, I mean, you obviously have been at the game station. Have you seen anything like that? Uh, well, there's an article a couple of months ago, actually, I think there was a lawsuit about it, has how uh, GameStop was selling used games as new. Right. Um, and that pretty much is exactly what it is. I mean, uh, a lot of the times with GameStop, instead of using cardboard boxes on the shelves or pictures of the games, they actually rip a, piece, a new copy. They, they gut it, pretty much. This is what he was saying in the article. Right, and they, they put it on the shelf, and so you have an actual box to look at when you're when you're looking in the store. Um, and if it's their last copy, which, I don't know, my luck, it, it always tends to be that copy when I bring a new one up to the shelf, uh, they will casually just grab the instruction manuals and disc out of a uh, drawer underneath the... the uh, register, they'll stick it in the case, and they'll hand it to you with no shrink wrap. And they'll put a sticker on it, basically, and that's the quote-unquote seal in case you have to return it, um, that they would accept it back. And they'll do this without mentioning you know, to you at all what, that this is, in fact, an open copy of the game that you're paying full price for. And what people found out, which is why there's, I think there's a lawsuit about it going on now, is that the employees are actually taking these copies home and playing them. And right. making it a 100% used copy of the game. And this happens all the time in GameStop, and it, that's pretty much how they get rid of their new stock. Is you know, whenever someone buys it, they just rip open another copy, throw it on the shelf, and there you go. 
And, I mean, it's happened before with, with everything else. Employees are allowed to take home copies of the games whenever they want. I think GameStop said they're going to do something about that now. But, I mean, you're, you never really know what you're going to get when you go into a GameStop. And if it wasn't for the giant yellow used stickers on the boxes on the shelves, I guarantee you it would be happening all the time. People would just be buying used copies and not even knowing it. See, Blockbuster over here now, um, for their pre-owned stuff, they used to have uh, a yellow sticker on with pre-owned, but no, just recently I've noticed it's not got the pre-owned written on, it's just an orange sticker, yep. and it's, you know, sort of really ambiguous, you just don't know, you know, I was looking at, I just really couldn't figure out if it was a new or used copy, and like you say, until you go up and actually ask, they'd have probably right. not pointed out whether it was new or not, you know, that if it was pre-owned, you know, they'd have stuck a used one in there and give it to you, but because the prices are not that much different from... Uh, new copies, you, you know, you can't tell by the difference in price either. And it's a shame right. with Blockbuster because they're one of the retail outlets who, you know, doing trade-ins. They're actually fairly reasonable. Not, not I wouldn't say reasonable. I'd say compared to <laughs> compared to games, say for example. I'm not sure. You've obviously never been in to buy a DSi okay. then. Uh, All right. Okay. Well, I haven't had your experience with DSi, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I found that you know, if you hand in a game, you you won't get completely ripped off for it. At Blockbuster, whereas a game, I, I kind of find myself thinking. <laughs> I think really? with newer stuff, they're pretty good. You know, if you go in about two weeks after, you'll still get around the twenty-six, right. twenty-seven pound mark where you go to game. You probably get, you know, seventeen. So, absolutely. I personally have had a, a few good experiences with Blockbuster. I would recommend them. As long as you're not trading in a couple of consoles for another one, that, that doesn't seem to end well. But uh, usually for games, it's fine. You're right in the fucking bollocks, one of these. You carried this on. So no worries, so I'll, um, I'll pop the kettle on. Yeah, for Nor- Nori, for, for Big Red Potion listeners who haven't heard this episode, which episode can I refer them to? For the, um, so that they probably can every episode after episode four. <laughs> it's uh, made reference to it at some point. And it's got a few, a few miles left in it yet, I think. Um, sure. I can't see what Do the I? problem is. All I done was <laughs> trade in two DS lights and three or f- well, I think about three or four new games for a DSi. I can't see the big problem. That's clever thinking. That's thinking on your toes. <laughs> yes, well, it is indeed. Well, something that came out in a, in a more recent episode, uh, Daz, was you, you got a, was it a Twitter message from a developer about you publicising a, a used game sale, and and he was quite complacent wasn't he I think it was um, because on our site we want to run a competition to win um, free games rental for a year right and um, he basically tweeted out saying that it was you know sort of harming the uh, game industry um, because they weren't getting enough money from the game rentals and I took it quite personally because you know all I was trying to do was give people you know free stuff and it was all quite a personal attack um, but he's, you know, your, uh, he's your best pal now, though, isn't he? Yeah, he, he, he actually turns out that when I slated him on our podcast, it turns out he listens to it. And a few <laughs> people from his uh, studio as well listen to it. So, uh, yeah, he's. Um, but he, he you know, was essentially saying that games rental kills the gaming industry to a certain extent, which, you know, I wasn't educated on the matter to really comment, so I just swore at him a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. What what do you guys think, Zan? Zan, do you think that rental... Uh, I guess used games and rentals kind of go hand-in-hand hand for me. Uh, do you think they're, they're ruining the industry? Well, yeah, I th- they're another risk to the... I think the problem we've got is that the, the economic model that the video game industry has used for a long time is is 
under threat and, and no longer really works in this kind of new media world where any Tom, Dick and Harry can set up a, a rental website and start shipping retail bought copies of games as rented games. Um, in days of old, you know, you, you probably those of you are old enough to remember VHS videos, you know, when you're the video store around the corner would rent out videos, those those rental copies of the VHS videos cost a lot more money um, because obviously they're going to be resold and resold and resold. So they effectively they were four, to, four or five times more expensive than what you would pay for the video cassette if you bought it from a shop. Um, and that was so that, you know, it could be rented out, but the, the publisher or the studio got, got their money. And, and certainly in the UK, um, I know that Love Film, for example, they do pay a license fee to the publishers for the games that they rent, but not... The problem is with the internet is that anyone can set themselves up as a game rental site and mm. um, none of that money, none of that royalty then gets passed on. You know, they can just trawl eBay buying up second-hand copies and then just start sending them out to people for, for £3.50 a week. That Unless they sell more of does it? The, well, there is, there, the, the law is kind of weak on this, which is why your, your developer buddies will probably be so angry um, because there isn't a great deal of protection in the law, I don't think, for that. Um, I, I think mean, um, what, um, what we were, or what our site was doing was with a, a, a reputable company rather than you know somebody that's on eBay picking up this and the next thing. It's um, it's it's a it's a legitimate company that presumably has went away and bought a, a large shipment. Of yeah, and we won't name the company just in case they sue. But um, that one, there is there are some suspicions around that one that I've read. So uh, again. That could just be malicious people anyway posting it, but right. um, uh, you do have to check with the people you rent off that they do have a legitimate license agreement with the with the publisher, and it, it isn't always the case. But for this particular that, one, uh, I, don't, I don't know. So if I could offer a, an alternative pers- perspective, if you like, uh, from a consumer's point of view, uh, if I was to go onto the internet now, for example, and you know, uh, bring up some hodgepodge website which looks extremely unprofessional and this is a site that has picked up games off eBay and such like, there's absolutely no way I'm putting my sort code and account number in that website it's just not going to happen I'm more likely to go to Love Film or something like that and I think they're they're the businesses that this chap was referring to, they're the sort of organisations speaking again as a consumer I, I, I think I'm not alone when I say this in comparison to previous years I'm pretty skint now I don't have a lot of disposable income for things like games. So when things like uh, the pre-owned market pop up or Love Film or any of the, the similar companies do that from a consumer perspective, even though, you know, taking out, take out of the equation the economic model that the whole industry is based on, as a consumer, a person that gets X amount of money per month from their wage, um, these sort of things are an absolute godsend. I think um, you, you bring up a good point, Nori, because this is something that uh, I wanted to come come up. Um, I think there's a perception, rightly or wrongly, that um, playing 50, 60 games a year now is normal and it's everyone's right to be able to do that. If you look back, particularly I can remember things like the SNES era um, where most people would maybe buy six, seven games a year at the most. They might rent two or three others. But today, people expect to be picking up a new game virtually every week, whether it's through rental or used or or paying, you know, full price through retail. I think I mentioned it uh, in a a post on a forum that we've never had it so good 
and there's almost now an expectation that it's our right to play all these games. And but it's, the, it's the, you know, people that put these adverts on the telly, it's almost making you feel that you need to buy them every yeah, week. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, there's, there's that to it as well. And, and, and they're fueling it by releasing so many games. I think, uh, I mean, you guys that work in the industry, you know, uh, Joe and Sinan, you, I mean, I think last year was the most games ever released in a year or something. It is my right to, to play 50 or 60 games or 70 games or whatever. If Love Film tell me that I, if I give them £10 a month, they'll send me these games. You know, that from a consumer perspective, um, that that is my right. I can give them £10 and all of a sudden I have access to that sort of service and these sorts of games. Um, it's, it's a good thing for somebody that's on a limited income that wants to play a number of games. It's, it, it's ethical, fair enough, not to take that option and to go out and save your money and buy maybe one every couple of months or whatever but why would you do that when you can pay £10 a well, month yeah, and I, get four I, of them I totally agree I, I do not um, cast any judgement on anyone who does that I think you know you can do it and you should do it you know if you right. can do it mm-hmm. and it's not illegal then do do it I'd rather people did that than, than piracy which you know is oh, inexcusable in my well, book you know I, someone tried to sell me an R4 card once and they I think they regretted even approaching me because I just I just launched into one at them um, <laughs> Uh, and they did it at work, funny enough. They did it in my in my staff um, coffee coffee shop, and I was just amazed. You know, I, I yeah, it's disgusting. But no, I totally agree. And you know, I can understand. You know, that's one that's my issue with game trading. Really, is that it's the retailer I'm unhappy with. It's not mm-hmm. the people that go in and buy used games. I buy used games all the time. I tend to buy mine online from Play or, or um, you know Amazon used or, or even eBay. But um, I don't. That, I think, is everyone's right. It's your right to sell these things. It's your right to buy these things. What I don't like is retailers coming in and creaming off the profits, but at the same time having to go at the industry saying you're not, you're not producing good quality enough games for us to sell, which is what they're basically saying. And my big issue is what happens in those first two or three months after a game has come out, because uh, a video game will make most of its money in the first three months. And when you walk into a store, as you said, you know, you walk into a GameStop and you say, I want to buy a copy of Infamous. And they say, well, here you go. Here's one that's five quid cheaper. And you don't know any different. As a consumer, you think, well, I've saved five quid. I'll go and buy some packet of peanuts or something. And really, you're being conned because you think you're buying something and you're giving, you know, you, your money is going towards the people who made the game. But it's all going into the, into the shareholder of the... Uh, the, but do you think a lot of consumers actually care whether that, you know, whether they should be or not? But do you think they actually, you know, I don't care? Think, no, I don't. I don't think they care. No, and and that's really part of the problem. And I think that's where a lot of the the industry gets frustrated is that not enough people do care. People well, want to play their games, but people don't feel motivated to ensure that their money is going to the right place. And I can totally understand that, you know, and and. I think, you know, maybe this is something we'll segue on to, but I, I do think the current economics of the video game industry are broken and that yeah. something something has to change. Either um, it all goes on to um, downloadable um, you know, digital distribution, which I, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I really don't think will happen, um, because, simply because not everyone has, has internet. Right. Um, or whether they go by some other horrible route, for example, where when you buy it in the shop, you only get half the game. Well, we'll, know, cer- is- we'll, cer- we'll certainly come on to that big question a bit later. But I, I think, just to go with Noy on one point, that you know, we have, there have been a lot of developers who have complained about, and, and I, I understand it from their point, obviously, about used game sales and rentals. But you did have uh, Satoru Iwata, Vice President of Nintendo, coming out and saying, frankly, at this stage, there's no point bitching because it's not illegal. 
and people are going to get because of the way that used games are you're not really losing any quality are you uh, you know it's unlikely mm-hmm. to be scratched who really cares about the manual and the box you just care about the game disc so uh, I think game developers are bitching in vain at this stage uh, which is and I, I hate saying that because I, I understand and I, I agree with you Sam completely it's the retailers who are really the uh, catalyst behind all of this but there's yeah. lots of other products that uh, are rented and resold that Absolutely. are not subject to getting, you know, like cars. And the developer that, um, you know, called me up on this, uh, you know, I said to him, well, you don't hear deck chair salesmen, uh, manufacturers complaining <laughs> that their deck chairs are being rented out, uh, which yeah. he didn't, you know, take too kindly to. But, you know, it is the same principle. We don't hear them or, you know, car manufacturers uh, moaning that they're not getting money from you know used car sales, so like, why should games be any different? The, oh, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say it's a whole different subject, which it isn't. No, no, I don't. I, don't, I wasn't going to say that. But what I was Come going on. to say is that your writer at Frugal Gaming, Murray Stuck, uh, he does your your Promats podcast. He wrote an article, quite a good article today. Uh, I think it was today. Yeah, uh, all about well, it be yesterday now. Yesterday, yeah, yeah, uh, all all about. Uh, pretty much what we're talking about today and he mentioned Bel- Belgium and the rules with game rentals there and how they had to ban anyone who they you know they've, ba- they've got it banned and they were trying arresting and, and punishing people who were renting games out and I guess you could argue that it's the imperative of the government to support the British games industry by doing something similar I think it's the same in Japan as well isn't it I think I, uh, I'm not sure to be honest could you imagine that? Or do, you, do you think that would be logistically possible to bring out some sort of legislation that uh, that done that in this country? No, we're, we're too too used to free market. Um, that wouldn't get through the lords. There's yeah, absolutely I mean, no chance. You only have to look at how the supermarkets have pretty much destroyed our retail high streets to see that we don't really give a shit about things like that. So no, I don't. I don't see that happening at all. Right. Um, there is there is one thing I, uh, which I thought someone would bring up actually, which is the pro argument for for used games and, and the used game market. And I've, I've, I've read quite a few blog posts about how it, you know, how it is good for the industry and how it stimulates sales. I mean, I don't know what other well, guys I, feel about that. I, I did find one post today, which I don't know if this is what you're saying, but basically the argument consisted of uh, to, have, to, sell a new, to sell a used game, you're selling a new game. Uh, you know, for every used game you sold, it's a, it was once a new game, which I think is a pretty weak argument, to be honest, because I think uh, the amount of used games that get sold... I, I suspect games get sold many times over are used, you know. Yeah, it's it's a volume issue because yeah, I mean I think the the figure I saw was that one game typically gets resold two to three times. So yeah, so the volume of sales from the retailer is far greater than the volume of sales from the for the publisher. And that margin of profit they're making is so huge. I mean they're they're making maybe for twenty or thirty yeah. pounds a dollar each time. That's ridiculous. On, yeah, mm-hmm. the markup on I've got US figures. I mean it'd be different in the UK because obviously we have all kinds of dodgy taxes and stuff that are applied, but in in the US, um, typically the markup on a new game is twelve dollars. Um, in the UK, it tends to vary because the wholesale price goes up and down. Whereas in the US, the wholesale price is fixed. I mean, the the British model is really to have um, most of the game stores actually buy games on on um, sale or return. Um, so the amount they pay for those games, the wholesale price they pay, can vary greatly from anything like 10 quid a game up to 35 pounds a game, depending on how popular the, either the publisher or distributor thinks, thinks that game will be, which is why, I mean, the frugal guys will tell you, it's why there's, there's such a huge variation in prices in the UK. 
the, the question I'm, I've got in my head at the moment is, um, are they really wrong to do that, though? As a business, as a corporation or whatever it is, you know, there's presumably shareholders to answer to and such like, they have to maximise profits. And, okay, we don't agree with it, and okay, they're, they're feeding a vicious circle, but are they really wrong? Free market economics, make as much money as you can. Well, I think a quote by Bobby Kotick uh, that came out yesterday uh, on the Activision conference call says it all. Um, someone brought up the fact that he's charging you know, $120 for DJ Hero and $120 for Tony Hawk. And mm. his response was, well, I would charge more if I was allowed to. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> I mean, I think that's what GameSpot thinks too. I mean, they're just like, hey, well, you know what? People are paying $55 for these used games. Why not? We'll make all our money off it. I, and I, I mean, that's the way it is. I do have that quote in my notes, and I did write it on the not really gaming news. I mean, <laughs> CEO of games company says, I want more money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's where the economic model is broken, because 10 years ago, you know, there was much more trust between the publishers and the retailers, whereas today there's virtually no trust between them, because the retailers look at them and think, oh, well, you're just going to go fully digital and you're going to screw us. Mm-hmm. And the publishers look at the retailers and say, well, you're just reselling our games over and over again, so you're going to screw us. And, and we're at this point, as I said, where you know it's all going to come to a head, and I, I just personally think the consumer is the one that will ultimately suffer. Well, I think that the problem with like a lot of the game pricing, I, I, in America anyway, like you can get a new game pretty cheap if you wait two or three weeks after it comes out. I mean, like, Red Faction Guerrilla dropped to 40 bucks like, two weeks after it came out or something online, if you were able to order it online. But GameStop will always keep it at 60 bucks for months and months and months. But, like, I think that's the, that's the thing, though. It's, like, it's... You're certain, not every game kind of has the same amount of content in it. Not every game kind of um, is, quote-unquote, worth the same amount. Like, when you look at Fallout 3, I mean, that game is kind of worth infinite money because you can play that thing for 5,000 hours and not see everything that there is to see. But Mirror's Edge is a five-hour game. There's really not much replay value to it. And they charge the same amount as they charge for Fallout 3. And I understand that games are expensive to make and everything, but if there was, you know, I mean, if you look at digital games now, there's a tier. There's a pricing tier. The $5 games are kind of the smaller Tetris-style things. $10 games are a little bit bigger. $15 games are stuff like Battlefield. Why don't we have something like that in the the brick-and-mortars marketplace? Why isn't there... A $60 tier where, you know, your game has, like, a Call of Duty 4 level of content in it. A $50 tier, which is maybe something like Red Faction Guerrilla, which doesn't have a strong multiplayer element, but has a lot of single-player stuff in it. And, like, a $40 tier, which is something like Dead Space, Mirror's Edge, there's no multiplayer in it. There's a couple hours of single-player. If you want to replay that, sure, go right ahead. But there's really no... There's no direct competition then between Fallout and Mirror's Edge because it's kind of like, well, if I want this kind of experience, I could save up 40 bucks, buy this. If I want a, you know, more meaty experience, I'll pay a little more, but I'll get more out of it. Yeah, I, I kind of figure that the weak argument against it that I keep hearing is that game content is intangible. That, you know, say something like Oblivion, you could get 30 hours out of it, you could get 300 hours out of it, as I think Zan has. But, um, you know, I, I find that weak because I think you could relate a parallel to that as the encyclopedia, which you know, will sell for how much it has in it. You know, a typical encyclopedia would be 60 or 70 pounds. You're not going to read every bloody word in the encyclopedia. Uh, unless, I don't know, go, I hope there's no one out there who does. Um, but, you know, you've still got the option to, and it, that's why it sells for that price. And I think, you know, okay, that's a very obscure 
and different parallel, I guess. And I guess maybe with movies, you don't really pay for how much content there is in a movie. I'm not even sure if, you, if there is any kind of structure of that with movies. And well, I mean, there kind of is. Like TV shows are more expensive than movies because there's more on the disc. TV shows are sixty dollars, where a movie is like twenty. And uh, it, it, in a way, it works. And if you kind of adapt that to games, you you pay more for what you get. I understand that there has to be a cap on that because otherwise, Bobby Kotick would be charging ninety dollars for. Oh, he is charging ninety dollars for Modern Warfare Two in the UK, isn't he? He's charging one. He, mm-hmm. uh, it's fifty-five pounds for the normal retail, and then with the night vision goggles and all that bullshit, it's a hundred pounds. I think okay, 120 so, pounds. So the tears are already in place, then I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Worth is a, a funny thing, though, isn't it? Because um, Worth is different for everybody. So that uh, Mirror's Edge game, for example, Silent Hitashura played that every single day, every hour of every day for about three months, and he got an awful lot out of it. And um, I played it for literally about probably three hours before I snapped the disc in half. So, to, to me, it was worth an awful lot less than what it was worth to him. So it depends. He, he would probably have paid £40 for it. I felt ripped off paying £9 for it. it just, I'd have paid uh, more for um, Black Sight Area 51 than I would Fallout 3. It is a classic. It's a better game. It's yes. a classic. <laughs> I mean, the Touchstone game, I would use this argument as Mirror's Edge, definitely. But I think the... The problem with that is that you could say it's because it sold badly. I think it, it barely reached a million sales overall, uh, if, if it, anything close to that in worldwide. Uh, but you could argue that's got to do with a lot of different factors and not just a really short game length. But then we heard all these reports that it was rented quite a lot, just like Dead Space. When the announcement of um, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 was going to be five quid more, um, I, I just thought the reaction to it was crazy because the amount of money more it was going to cost wasn't that much it was only i think it was what 10% more um and the price of video games really uh, today uh, they're cheaper than they've ever been i mean i can remember playing 60 quid for mario kart in 64 so uh, you take but into account inf- inflation it's they yeah, start, i think the price of mr you know not justifiable you look at the costs of um producing a film and you look at the cost of producing a game and then look at the difference in how much they retail for but if you look at the quantum of solace the film um i think that was about 220 million dollars um to make the film uh not you know i think it was about 60 to make the game and but the game was four times more expensive so how is that justifiable that price in the first place well, you've got to remember with um, movies that the um, the film, well, the, the thing with the movie industry is that the main platform for sales is actually the cinema. So um, when you buy it on DVD, that's their equivalent of the aftermarket. There is no equivalent of that with video games. It basically goes straight to the aftermarket. So it's mm. not like it gets a, an exclusive run in cinemas first to try and make its money, and then it gets a run on DVD, Blu-ray afterwards. It only gets one shot at it. And secondly, you'll probably find that the number of people that paid money to see A Quantum of Solace, is, uh, the movie, is probably something in the order of 100, maybe even 200 times higher than the, nu- the potential number of people out there there are to actually buy the game. So, the, you know, as I said earlier, and when I was giving you the, the rundown of how much it takes to, to make a profit, you've got to sell, really, at least a million copies. Um, for a game that costs $50 million to make, you've got to sell at least a million copies to break even. 
and that's a that's a hell of a lot um, of new game purchases. Um, and, and lots of these games, like Mirror's Edge and Dead Space, have failed to achieve that. And there's been various arguments that the reason for that is that they had no multiplayer element, because that's the main method of trying to, of, of trying to counteract the the, the kind of um, rental and trading market. Well, that all, that all goes back to what we discussed in a previous show about the death of the single-player game, because, you know, it's uh, is someone going to try and make a nine-hour game but not put the production costs into it just to ensure that they, they can make a profit on retail? So if Mirror's, will Mirror's Edge come out at £20 rather than £40? It's just, that's not going to happen. It's not practical. It won't sell if it's got lower production costs because it's a shorter game. I, I can see from both sides because obviously I am a consumer and that's my first uh, my first interest. So I can see it from that side because any price increase for a game I don't agree with. It's almost, in a sense, exploit exploitation because you're exploiting the massive demand that there is for that game, and that's the reason it's, it's came out at that price. It's uh, there is no other reason. It's to make more money out of people from the the developers and. So on the retailer's point of view, it makes perfect sense to do that because you're making more money out of people. Is it right? Well, in a free market, of course it's right because peop- the organisations are there to make money. They're not there to create games for people on, you know, well, free. As a no, but if they make a lot more money on Modern Warfare 2, they'll invest a lot of that money in making Modern Warfare 3 even bigger and even badder and even more detailed. And you know, then they'll raise the price again and use sure that they will. <laughs> Which yeah, sure. is not, uh, it kind of defeats the purpose. What they'll do if they make more money is they will spread it amongst their shareholders first and foremost. That's what they'll do. It yeah. won't be instantly pumped into other development. That's exactly what will happen. Well, it, That's it, not a bad thing, though, because it means that these companies can continue and get bigger and stronger. Yeah. Uh, but from a consumer's point of view, it's annoying because I have to spend more money to take part in this hobby that's becoming more expensive by the day. Well, that's that is an issue. I mean, and and I think when you talked earlier about the iPhone and the iPod Touch, that's I think that's almost a, a reaction against that as well. That again, it's it's almost like the you talk about Hollywood. It's, it's take going the Hollywood model in that games are becoming you know more and more expensive every year, just as movies became more and more expensive every year, and the movie industry had to try to find different ways of trying to get that money back because it became more and more of a gamble each time. Uh, and then what you saw coming out of that was the birth of the indie scene. Um, and, and we're starting to see that certainly with on the video game scene, that that's, that's the current exciting growth area um, where yeah, the, the cost of the games is that much cheaper and they're able to knock them out so much faster. I have a question about the retail game box which just occurred to me. Does, what information is on the side of a box regards content? You know, is, is there anything like uh, hours of gameplay or anything like that? Because I... I no, with films you get running time. Do you, do you get anything like that with games? A lot of games promise stuff on the back, like some absurd number. You know, um, some games do anyway. They say, "Oh, yeah, over twenty hours of, of yeah. gameplay and stuff like that." But there's no set um, box area or whatever where it says, "Oh, sixty to eighty hours" or anything like that. Because I think films have to say their running time on the back. Yeah. Uh, but running time for a game would be different for everybody. You well, know, if exactly. you've got uh, if you've got an absolute expert like myself, I might run through a game in three hours. If you've got a, a retard like that, it might take three days. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take like some orange juice there. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I bring that up just because you know you said Joe with movies that, and television that there is this kind of layer of structure regards content, but I think you know movies movies are all kind of the same length. 
roughly two hours. You know, maybe maybe ninety minutes, maybe two and a half hours. Uh, so the the price will be different for a movie based on its quality and. Now I relate that to popularity. If a film's not selling, it will go down in price. If a game's not selling, it might not be related to its quality, as we've seen with Mirror's Edge. Like, and that's what just worries me about the situation at the moment. And that's why I think we're going to switch to digital distribution because it just, I think it will, it makes more sense in with regards to that because production costs at the moment, digital distribution, you're not really noticing. Like, you know, I think we, we've got lower standards of, of uh, expectation with digital distribution games at the moment. And I think uh, if Mirror's Edge had come out on Steam, say, I think it would have sold a lot better than if it had come out at retail. A problem, though, with that is I think that, uh, especially in the U.S., because a lot of gamers buy games specifically with the knowledge that they can trade this in in a couple of weeks and get some money back for it. I think that it might discourage some people from buying mm. as many games as they do if they cannot sell them back. Like That's Call Duty, I'm sorry, like Call of Duty Six or whatever only came out digitally, which would never happen in a million years. But if that was the case, I think that the sales would be dramatically different than they would be for the next Modern Warfare. You see, Daz, Daz mentioned the like television adverts as the cause for why we all want to play games. I think it's problems that are fault of people like you and me, Joe, and the internet. Like, we're, we're such an enthusiast community that we're always talking about games all the time, and you're always playing a new game every single week. Mm. So I feel like there's a pressure with, from the press, it, really. It is totally. I get so whipped it up into a frenzy, like a game I've never even been interested in. I hear, like, you guys on Twitter talking about it, and I'm, like, off to the shops, you know. <laughs> so just peer Treat pressure. Well, Especially when you're a part of a community but, but, like a lot I, of us are, you know. Yeah. How does How does that work with something like Carnival Games, though? Because I don't know anyone who was, who was out there shouting at the top of their voices, this is a great game to play. And I don't remember seeing that many adverts for it either. But yeah, it showed I actually remember you uh, saying it was the best game you'd ever played on <laughs> no, the that's, podcast. So. That's my wholesome me. I told you that before. <laughs> I, I refer you to our previous shows, and The Wii market is not for us to understand. It is a whole different beast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, it's unusual. And I, I, the other thing, I'm quite curious about that. I mean, this is nowhere near scientific, but... Um, I've kind of I have this perverse fascination with going into game stores and tutting and moaning about what they're doing <laughs> with their game years stores or game stores. Game. I can just clear that up. Well, probably both. Okay. You know. oh. Yeah, I like to share it around a bit. But um, <laughs> uh, I, and I remember once I, I tweeted about it because I was in a I was in a game store in um, Bristol and I was really angry because the um, PSP shelf was about three inches long and three quarters of the games on that three inches of shelf were used. And they did have new games, but they were all in the cabinet at the back, you know, and that, that really wound me up. And then I remember Darren tweeted something about, you know, calm down, take a Valium, because yeah. I was really annoyed by that. But <laughs> if, you go into, if you go into your average game store, the interesting thing is that Wii games don't seem to be traded as much. I don't know why that is, or, you know, it's just a curiosity. You know, when you go in and look at the, sh the, the shelves of uh, used games, you tend to find 360 and PS3 dominate. And we has massive shelf space for new games, but actually tiny shelf space for used. So I, I don't know why that is, but it's well, an odd thing. I think that ties into exactly what Daz was saying. The enthusiast gamer is playing on his PS3 and 360, and he wants to play 60 games a year. And to afford yeah. that, he has to hand in a few games. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds logical to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, how many copies of Mario Kart Wii could they possibly display on one shelf? <laughs> I, do you know what? You never ever see that used. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a copy of that used. Anyway. Neither have I. Neither yeah. have that, re I. that retains its value like you wouldn't believe. Yep. 
But going back to what you just said, uh, show about if you wanted to play the 60 games, you have to trade in. I think we've spoke a lot on the show um, about high street stores and in digital downloads, but I think we've sort of overlooked the online retailer, which you know, personally, I think uh, mm. saving a lot of people, you know, that they're the future for me. To be honest, like digital downloads, I think there's got a few areas that's going to fall down on. But if you look at what uh, online retailers are doing for Given us gamers the cheapest gaming experience possible, you know they're the people that are taking the losses and selling us these games at ridiculously low prices. And, and to, to back you up, not so that doesn't come across like a, a, a cheap plug. I completely agree <laughs> because you know, like uh, Play.com. Oh yeah, for yeah, example, no, that was not a cheap plug. Oh, absolutely not. No, I know. I'm, I know. And uh, you know, Play.com, for example, just. I got Chinatown Laws on DS for £10, which is just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And the mm-hmm. fact is they, they don't have all the costs that uh, the high street retailer has to go through. No, um, and the other thing to bear in mind is they buy job lots. So, um, you know, I just told you that, um, you know, the, the high street ones will buy things on sale and return. Um, all that stuff that gets returned gets resold on the wholesale market. So, that, as you know, Chinatown Wars didn't sell very well at all. So that gets sold as a job lot in the wholesale market, and the, the online retailers like Play and Shop2 come along and go, oh, yep, thank you very ni- nicely, that would do. We'll stick that on our site. We'll make, you know, I don't know, two quid on every one we sell, but we're going to sell tons of them. And that's what they do. Is that a similar situation in the US, Joe? I mean, most people here buy their games in GameStop and Walmart. That's just the way it is. But the smarter gamers, like me personally, maybe the last 15 games I bought, 14 of them were from Amazon.com. Because they they drop prices. I think the US people, um, you know, uh, as British gamers, we complain a lot about the prices that we pay compared to the Americans. But if you look on our online stores, because on Frugal, we've just started doing US deals, and it's a lot harder to find US deals online than it is in the UK. The prices in the UK, uh, even for a two-week-old game, come down from £49 to 27 Then after three or four weeks, they can go down to around £17. Where you look in the US, you know, they're not getting that, that same amount of um, bargain games on online retailers, I don't think. Or definitely not in the, the amounts that we get. No, I think there is a the greater concern about price in the UK. And, and you're absolutely right to bring up the whole US versus UK thing. I mean, this is the, this is exactly what was the, the spur for that Call of Duty piece of news, and it's the, the contrast between here and Europe. I mean, do you see prices in Europe changing at all? Do you think like sites like Play.com and Amazon and Shop2, are they going to have an influence on UK retailers? I think they should do because they're the you know they're the people that are biting the bullet and you know selling these ridiculously low prices. So you know when you're used to looking at those prices online, you go into a high street store. It makes the prices look ridiculous, and in some way in the future, that's got to affect the way people spend their money. You know, on high street. I, I mean, I I I think uh, of all the games I've bought in the last three years, I think I probably only bought three in a bricks and mortar store. And that's yeah. only because they were discounted or, or they were a peripheral game. But that's another thing that the manufacturers are trying to do to boost their profits. They were profits. pre-owned, sir. They were pre-owned. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, I've bought you. Yeah, I've bought... Uh, I, have, I mean, I do buy used games. I said, you know, I'm not... I, I, I do buy things that way. But I don't buy anything that's... I don't buy anything used that's less than three months old. But um, yeah. the, the, 
you know, the the, um, the the bricks and mortar stores in the UK, their online stores are cheap. I mean, game regularly have discounts up to you know sort of ten, fifteen pounds for Xbox 360 games. You know, so it's not um, they're not averse from doing it either. It's just that they like to maintain because the retail store is so geared towards used games. They have to keep the margin on the used games, and so therefore they then go with the maximum retail price for the for the brand new games. Whereas on their online store, I mean, I I'll be honest with you, I buy most of my games pre most of my pre-orders are done through game um, because you get such a big discount from them for pre-ordering. You get often you get fifteen twenty quid off. So you know they can do it, they can discount it. It's just that they don't want to in their retail store because that's where they make all their money. They want to have One their hands in both pies, don't they? They do, yeah. So one thing I think that more publishers have to really get smarter about is creating a long tail on your games. Like uh, Ubisoft has been excellent at doing that in the past year or two. What Ubisoft does basically is they put their games in the U.S. I'm not sure if they do it over there too, but they put their games out for sixty. Wait two months, they drop twenty bucks off that price. Wait another month, and they drop ten bucks more. So the game is now half price in the U.S. And obviously this spurs on huge sales because people look at it and say, "Wow, this game was just sixty bucks. I'm going to buy three copies of Hawks." And, like, a month later or whatever, they'll bring the price back up to the $60 rate. <laughs> and, I mean, a game like N-War, N-War was initially pronounced a huge failure. A couple of months after it came out, I was actually doing some research about it, and uh, on the official forums, they're like, N-War did not sell enough copies for a sequel, this is the end of the series. And Ubisoft dropped the price, dropped the price, dropped the price, they fluctuated a bit, and now, I think a month ago, they said that they're going to make a sequel to N-War because the, the sales picked up, and it's now become a successful series. And I think that's really on the publishers to say, hey, you know what, retailers, we're going to give you a discount on these games. Go sell them cheap for this amount of time. Get in, you know, Create a tail for this game so that it will continue to sell over time. And then maybe these games will be more successful in the long run. I don't think that long tail exists in the UK. I feel like we, you either have a game maintaining its price for many years, Call of Duty being the primary example, or the game plummets to a sharp drop very, very quickly. Like you uh, say, for example, X Blades, which uh, we constantly uh, lambast and ridicule on this podcast. But uh, you know that came out at thirty nine pounds ninety nine, and then within a couple of weeks, it was nineteen ninety nine. I just don't think there's that grey area in the UK when it comes to game prices dropping over time. I'm not sure if I'm being a bit drastic about that. It only seems to be. It- Definitely over the last six months to a year, the the only ones that maintain their price is the AAA titles, you know, like Call of Duty and um, Killzone. They're the only real games that I've not seen drop to a silly low price, you know, like £15. So Mario games. Mario Mario games, games, yeah. Ridiculous. But everything, you know, even now to the point where they go and sub £10, you know, a lot of games you pick up for £8 that are, you know, two, three months old. Right, yeah, so, so like you say, there is no no real grey area at the moment. That's that's, that's the natural uh, market economics of it because it's supply and demand. There is no mm. supply of used Call of Duty games because everyone's got it stuck in their console playing it on Friday night. Um, but for X Blades, anyone who bought it probably hated it and therefore traded it in almost immediately. And therefore, there's lots of trading copies. Therefore, the um, the, the new ones get sent back to the publisher, and the publisher has to try and flog them as best they can. So. I think our, I think our, the UK always has been, uh, 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 in terms of retailing, always has been a country where it has, we have left things to market forces a lot more. Uh, like I said earlier, that's why our supermarkets have killed off most of the 
the, the, the high streets around the country because we allowed them to discount and to undercut and to behave badly. But as consumers, we all got a good deal out of it. So, But it's those games that you talk about, like Call of Duty, that are so well supported. You get the map packs released, so it's almost they're making you... It's like you can't get rid of it because... It's, you. It's a, it's a vicious circle again, though, isn't it? It sold well, therefore it makes sense to do DLC for it. If yeah. it hadn't sold well, they wouldn't do any DLC. So it's, you know, it's kind of works both ways. But um, yeah, I think um, I know you said you were going to move on to that to, to fix it then, but I, I, I do think that we talked at the beginning about um, uh, digital distribution. I think one of the ways that the publishers may try to counteract trading and renting is to only sell half the game and. Um, we started seeing that last year, didn't we, with Gears of War 2, where it came, when right. you bought it, it came with a one-off code to download the last three maps. Now, if you bought it used or rented it, you would have to pay for those maps. But if you bought it new, you got the maps for free. And I, I can see that creeping in and, and starting to become the norm. I, I would certainly agree, but I would completely disagree with half the game. <laughs> I think, I think you know, there was a sharp reaction. I can't remember which developer who it was who came out of that, who pretty much said, it will literally be half the game. And uh, the response was, you are kidding. So yeah. I, I think you, closer to what Gears of War 2 did, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the, one, the one exception which goes with what Daz is saying is Burnout Paradise, which has continued to sell worldwide based on you know, its long tail of uh, DLC being free, and that just kept it within the, you know, the market. And and in the, I don't know if it's the case in the US, Joe, but in the UK it came down in price as well, and that just seemed to the, the combination of that just seemed to get make its sales ridiculous. Yeah, burnout seemed to drop pretty quick over here to to half price, but it's it's kept its like twenty to thirty dollar price range for about a year now. Year Same here, I think. I, d- I don't know. I I I would tend to side with Zan on that one actually I think that makes a lot, a lot of sense and it, it does bring us nicely at the two hour mark roughly to the <laughs> end, end of the show because I do have one final question for all our guests and uh, you know I've got a whole bunch of topics just by the way for, for listeners who are thinking we haven't talked about that there's about like 10 things but I think we could be here all night if we try to discuss every part of gaming economics so let's get on to this final question for all our guests and it goes back to that question I think Zan brought up quite early on in the show Will we or will we not eventually go to digital distribution for all games? Will we see the death of the game retailer? Uh, and I will go to Joe first. Oh, good. Uh, I would say no, because most of the U.S. is ill-equipped to handle that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, Nori? I would hate to give a definitive answer. I would say... Probably not, no, because most people, myself included, actually like to have physical objects. Um, otherwise, you're just buying a license, which is not, not really the same sort of thing. I prefer to have the box with the disc and such like. And I, I think a number of people are, uh, are similar. And not only that, but I don't think there's the infrastructure in terms of internet um, for that sort of thing to go on mass. Not everybody's connected to the internet for a start, and those that are, I'm on BT, and it's, they're... they're absolutely hopeless half the time so if I was to get all my games through DLC I'd be waiting three weeks to download one probably Fair enough and that's a a very important point we didn't really get into about the whole idea of physical copies and licenses which has caused its own whole sort of debate and stirring Uh, Daz what what do you think? I'd like to see it be uh, 
well-managed di digital distribution be in the future, but, uh, you know, at low cost, obviously. But I can't see it happening, like the others said, because of the infrastructure that we've got. And I'm a real bad hoarder of games, and I like to collect stuff. So, again, I wouldn't like to see it because, you know, I like to have something physical in my hand. Uh, what would it sound a little bit dodgy, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> doesn't come as a huge shock. I, I am very lazy, so I'd like to see everything, you know, so I didn't have to get up and put in a game, but I don't think it's going to, you know, go that way, so. Fair enough. Four for four, Sam? Um, yeah, I'm going to say no, but because I think there will be a two-tier system where I think probably 50% of the games that come out every year will be digital only, and 50% will be um, retail and digital um, simply because uh, I think what you'll find is the enthusiasts will migrate to digital much quicker um, and those people who are I hate using the word but casual gamers, people who buy maybe four or five games a year um, and those that don't have the ability to pay for things on debit cards and credit cards, they will still need to go to bricks and mortar stores to sell their to, to buy their goods So, but I do think that you've already seen the trend that things like PSN and Xbox Live are uh, a growing year on year and I, I don't see that reducing fair enough uh, I'm not going to make it 4 for 5 I'm going to go with yes uh, never the optimist I just think it's the natural progression of things and I, I think as much as you know you can you'll have a a rear guard from the retailers and uh, all the pressures that they can place on publishers I think uh, at this stage the money is with with the publishers, even if, if the retailers are making ridiculous margins of profit, I still think Microsoft and Nintendo and Sony are giants, real giants. And uh, if they decide to really go this full-blooded, I, I just, I, I would argue in a straight battle they will win. Uh, but that is for the future and not for today. Otherwise, we'll be here all night, and this is ridiculously <laughs> late already. So uh, I think that brings us to the end of the show. Guys, thank you very, very much. That was superb. Uh, I'm sure listeners will agree. And uh, I'm sure that Darren Norridale will be wanting to know more about where they can save all this money that you were talking about on uh, games. So please fill our listeners in on, on what you guys do. Right, so if you uh, want to come and find the cheapest games available in the UK and now the US, come and visit our website at uh, www.frugalgaming.co.uk or follow us on Twitter where you can get your uh, all our deals and our blog posts direct to your Twitter account, which is at Frugal Gaming, by the way. And that's it. <laughs> yep. There you quite go. good for a shameless self-publicist. That was pretty damn short. Uh, that's very good. I was, <laughs> I was impressed. Um, and Nori, are you still running your blog over at a, is it PS3 fanboy? <laughs> are, you, are you still Oh, no. Blog? No, no, no that's, um, that's long gone, I'm afraid. Oh. I, uh, I don't have the, the time to, to put into that anymore. So he sold his soul to me, you see. <laughs> yeah, cost me a couple of DSIs. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, um, I'd like to show a couple of folks, though, if that's, oh, that's okay. Uh, I would, obviously, everybody over at Frugal Game, the team-wise, that help us, because they are a godsend, really. We've got so much bigger than we were in the past that we... We rely on a lot of people that do, you know, post deals, for example, for us, um, surf the net and tell us where the deals are. And it's, it's a great help, tremendous help. So thank you to everybody that does that because it's, it's 
we really do appreciate it. And if anybody does find any deals that they'd like to share with us and our community and whoever's uh, on our Twitter list, uh, could you send them to Daz? What's the feedback it, address? It's uh, feedback at frugalgaming.com. .com. We've got about ten different email addresses, but it's dot .com. <laughs> and uh, that, that would be great. I'd also like to shout out everybody at Cranky Gamers as well, of course, who I'm sure everybody will know by the time that this goes out that they've now moved over to the gamer scene. And I wish them all, all the best with that. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, recommend everyone to, to add to their Twitter account, Frugal Gaming, because that's what I do, and that has been a godsend just to get from my Twitter it's also been kind of a bugger because my bank account is really quite fucked right now, guys, because <laughs> like every five minutes there's a deal I, I pounce on. So uh, I'm going to blame you guys for me being broke. But uh, also just to, wanted to shout out, before we go to Zan, to the Unified Gamers Network, which uh, we're all part of, Matt, Zan's Ninja Fat Pigeons, uh, you guys at Frugal Gaming, there's Crank Games UK, we're going to be the gamer scene tomorrow. Uh, there's also Games Traffic, which is a great little website. And uh, who am I missing out? Gamerdork. And uh, you guys are going to appear on the Game of Dork podcast, if I'm right. Is that right? Next Saturday, I do believe. We, we were supposed to do it last week, but we uh, had a few things pop up, so we're going to be on there. Uh, another one English, one Scottish duo, so should be good to listen to. I recommend everybody, you know, download their podcast anyway, because it's a yeah. good boot. Absolutely. Uh, Gameofdork.net. And uh, that sounds like Civil War is going to break out in that podcast, so that should be fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, I'll go to Zan then. Zan, do you want to sh- make any shout-outs or plugs? Um, yeah, I'll just uh, uh, obviously give a shout-out to the Ninja Fat Pigeons, and we had our another meet-up yesterday at the Great British Beer Festival, and that was that was good fun, um, particularly Leg and a Demote uh, and Oxy, and, uh, and Foible joined us as well from CrankyGamers.net, so that was quite good. Um, I also want to give a plug to, to fellow UGN sites, um, GamerDork. Uh, I recorded... Uh, podcast today which will go up later in the week um, for Cranky Gamers UK or the gamer scene as it will be known um, which is a, a special edition of our, our replay show the monthly show we do um, and we were covering 8-bit gaming and it was my pleasure to have um, Ratso Albion from Game of Dork actually uh, be on that and he's, that man has got encyclopedic knowledge I tell you well, he's, he's scary <laughs> he's absolutely <laughs> brilliant and he was a, a fantastic guest uh, along with um, Striden and Silverfin, so yeah, and I'll just give a plug out to that. Really, that will be that will go live after the first um, the Gamer Scene weekly show with with Flying Dits. Um, so um, that will go out later in the week, probably Friday or Saturday, I think. But uh, yeah, it was it was a really good, fun podcast to do actually. And for old gits like me, it was a, a real trip down memory lane. He's got he's got quite a traditional eight uh, bit history, hasn't he? I think he was Commodore and uh, all that kind of Ooh, no, stuff. He, no, 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 he's got a really eclectic uh, background. His main platform was the uh, Atari 800, I think. He's got quite a games collection as well, I think, hasn't he? Well, we, we compared gaming penises, actually, when we did the <laughs> podcast, and uh, I actually won, because he's got 24 consoles and I've got 25, so I win on that score. So I was quite pleased about that. Well, and he was going to count more than one PC, which I wouldn't let him do. <laughs> wow. So... Um, so yeah, so I just uh, plug out and, and the you know the Game of Dork, uh, an excellent uh, podcast and uh, another member of the UGN. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think between you, Ratso Albion, and uh, Joe, I reckon every single game has been played. I think you three between <laughs> you probably cover it all. Which uh, is, uh, like Dad says, I'm not sure that's an achievement to be honest. <laughs> 
But uh, there you go. Um, Joe, any, any plugs or shout-outs on your behalf? Uh, no, I actually completely forgot what I was going to say oh. because of that last statement. So uh, <laughs> Sweet. Uh, you were going to say uh, go to Frugal Gaming, I think. Go to Frugal Gaming. It's awesome. .co.uk. That would do. .com. Good man. I had something too. All right, go ahead. I was going to supersede your plug, Joe, because it's someone's birthday tomorrow, isn't it? Oh, dear. Yes, it is. How old are you? I'd rather not say. A young 21. Limber and firm. That sounded wrong. But, yeah, happy birthday. sir. I think you had your party on Friday, and that, if anyone's wondering why he sounds a little bit groggy, that, that might be why. Still, <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to spend tomorrow playing Crazy Taxi, so it'll be a fun day. Oh, on Crazy the Taxi. Dream, Dreamcast? Yes, absolutely. Well, actually, oh. you know, the Xbox One, because I can jump in it, and I like that. Oh, yes. I roll yeah. We've already had a long uh, Twitter discussion about Crazy Taxi. We probably shouldn't get into that again. Um, okay, yeah, I pay any price. <laughs> Happy birthday. Hey, hey, hey. Oh god! No, let's, let's let's stop it here. Uh, ne- next week we're going to have a really special guest, so look out for that. We're also going to have a, a, a great guest, maybe not. Oh, I've undersold him. Anyway, it's the, it's Jeffrey Matlef. We're looking forward to having him back, and, and someone quite special who I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Am I, Joe? No, no, not yet. But uh, it would make my birthday surprise uh, very good if he comes on the show. Awesome. Okay, Bert Reynolds. It is <laughs> Bert Reynolds. You ruled. You ruined it. Okay, Bert Reynolds on next week's show. Look forward to it. See you then.